Amen, all right. Well, I don't know if you guys uh, noticed this or not, but uh, part of the unfortunate side effect of this pandemic, what? That's right, I said pandemic, uh, is they've been pushing to keep us away that, okay, you can still get together, but it's those virtual get-togethers, right? Those virtual meetings, right? And they've been pushing that technology called Zoom. You guys familiar with that? Well, the problem with that is Zoom, Shmoom, the average Joe has no clue how to use that thing, right? And frankly, sometimes the results are very embarrassing. Like it was this guy. I'm not making this up. This is an actual Zoom court meeting with a judge in Texas. Watch this. This is wild. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to. Uh, uh, take, take we're a trying look. to. We're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, the, it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope you're not a cat. Uh, but can you imagine that? I mean, it really happened, folks. You even made the news, man. Uh, uh, but that's just uh, a little bit embarrassing, wouldn't you say? Okay. Uh, unfortunately, folks, as you know, there's always a point to this. Uh, as embarrassing as that was, I think I found another meeting, a type of meeting that's way more embarrassing than that. Uh, and it's this. It's when people continue to meet with Christians, and yet they continue to mock and scoff about the news of the rapture of the church and their need to get saved before it's too late. You keep that up, uh, the Bible's very clear. You will virtually be left behind, and you'll be way beyond embarrassed. You'll be thrust into the seven-year tribulation and it's not a joke. You'll wish it was just a cat filter. It's not a cat filter. It's God's wrath being poured out for seven years nonstop. So in order to help these people, unfortunately, who are not ready, uh, we're going to continue in our study, Are You Ready for the Rapture? And again, this is a study I keep saying. It's where the rubber meets the road, man. You can get all kinds of things wrong in life. You can accidentally have the cat filter on in a Zoom meeting, okay? I, I got, but don't get eternity wrong, right? Don't miss out on the rapture, okay? And if you've been tracking with us so far, we've seen six things about the rapture to help others get ready for it. And that was the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture, the reward for the rapture, the timing of the rapture. And then last time, if you guys were here, we saw the objections specifically to the pre-trib rapture. And there we saw it's just, it's crazy. We're not just pulling this out of thin air. We're deriving this from the scripture, right? Five times we dealt with the timing aspect that the Bible says that we are not appointed unto God's wrath. We're going to see that again today. The Bible teaches there's a pre-trib scenario that we're not going to be in the seven-year tribulation. There's tons and tons of evidence of that. Right? But people still persist and they reject okay, that biblical truth and they throw up basis objections. We saw that some people actually base, uh, reject the whole teaching of the rapture, not just the pre-trib position because they say the word rapture is not found in the Bible. Uh, really? Okay, as we saw, if you were here last time, uh, that's because uh, the uh, word rapture is the English word that comes from the Latin word rapture, which comes from the Greek word and the New Testament, harpazo, which both mean a quick snatching, catching away. What's your point? right? And, and it's, it's just because it's a translation issue. How many guys read Koine Greek today? Nobody, right? So you got to update. What's the big deal? That's, that really, that's your whole case for rejecting the rapture. Uh, and then based on your logic, uh, uh, apparently we need to reject the Bible, the Trinity, and the millennium because those words don't appear in the Bible. Come on. If that's all you got, it's pretty basis. Then we saw, of course, the second ones. They say the rapture is not a secret event. Well, duh. Who said it was? We didn't say it was. You did. Right? That's not coming from us. We're trying to do our best to what? What do you think we're doing right now? We're getting the word out. We're not keeping this a secret. Trying to let as many people as we know as we can. You're the one that's trying to put a lid on it, okay, if you will. And then if you're going to sit there and say, well, the Bible says that 
at the return of Jesus, every eye is going to see him. And you said, uh, it's going to happen. You know, when you don't notice it's in secret. So that's a con- No, the contradiction is you're twisting scripture. You're quoting a passage dealing with the second coming at the end of the seven year tribulation and saying that's the rapture, which happens prior, right? The problem is you're quoting the Bible out of context. Okay. And we saw at least 20 different differences between the rapture and the second coming. They're not the same event. Okay. But unfortunately these people persist. And they keep throwing, I'm telling you, I use this word, uh, uh, not just ridiculous, but they're baseless, baseless, false accusations. They just keep recycling them over and over again. And the third one is this. They say, well, the pre-trib rapture is not mentioned in a single verse. Really? Right? Let's, let's take a look and let's analyze this uh, false accusations because that's what it is. Now, we've already seen for at least, what, five weeks, tons, mountains of biblical proof that the Bible really does teach a pre-trib scenario, i.e. the church leads prior to the seven-year tribulation. We saw that with the absence of the church, the location of the church, the promises of the church, the removal of the church, even the purpose of the seven-year tribulation has nothing to do with the church. So why do you keep trying to squeeze the church in there? Okay, But, but again, that's where we derive it. We believe in it because that's what the Bible teaches. Right? It's not a form of escapism. But they say, aha, but that's not a single verse. Okay? So what you're really saying According to your theory, your logic is no biblical doctrine can be made from a deduction in the Bible that it has to be an exact teaching from an exact verse. First of all, that's ludicrous because there's all kinds of teaching in the Bible that you may not point to an exact word with an exact verse, but if you read the panoply of scripture, all of scripture, you deduce it from it. Let me give you a case in point. One guy says this, oftentimes people who make the argument against the pre-trib rapture, they say the Bible does not say anywhere that the church will be raptured before the tribulation, which is not true. We'll get to that in a second. But they say the Bible uh, says, you got to realize that the Bible says many things indirectly that we need to infer. And that's perfectly fine. For instance, let me give you one easy example. For instance, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are not to commit abortion. In fact, you'll never find the word abortion in the Bible. But, The Bible does say, thou shalt not kill. And so we can safely biblically infer that since the Bible says you cannot kill and that you would have to kill in order to abort, then guess what? God would be against abortion and that's why we're against it, right? While most, yes, major doctrines of the Bible are confirmed by direct statements, not all are. In fact, many precious biblical truths do not lie exposed on the immediate surface. So again, there's nothing willy-nilly going on. It's nothing uh, abnormal, okay, to deduce biblical teachings from the Bible uh, in, without being able to point to an exact single verse. We do that all the time, not just with the pre-trib rapture, okay? Yeah, with that stated, you want a single verse? We'll give you more than a single verse, right? You say, I, I can't believe it. There's not a single verse that teaches that the church has gone prior to the... Really? What Bible are you reading? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, right? Let me just give you one, and we're going to give you several of them, right? Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9 is our opening text. And uh, let's see what God says. Are we going to be around the seven-year tribulation? Let's see what the the scripture says. But let's go ahead and stand as we read God's holy word. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9. And of course, Romans, Chris was written to. Give it up for Chris, biblical scholar guy right here. All right here, just the anointings oozing off of him all over the place. That's right. Maybe it'll spread over here, hopefully later. But uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9. Let's take a look at what the scripture says to you and I. You, You see, at just the right time, while we were still what? powerless. Christ died for those who were so worthy. He had to die because we are so, oh, I'm sorry. That's the new age pop psychology Bible. You need to get rid of that. That's not what it says. It's what he died for the who? The ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But listen, God demonstrates his own love for us 
in this, while we were still his best buddies? No, sinners, Christ died for us. Now, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? Saved from God's wrath through who? Him, Jesus, you may be seated. So here you go, right there in that verse, last time I checked, It says, through Jesus Christ, as an act of mercy, we didn't earn it. We were sinners, ungodly. The scripture goes on and says we were his enemies. God, as a pure act of his mercy, he has saved us from the wrath of God. Last time I checked, that involves the seven-year tribulation because the seven-year tribulation is seven years of God's wrath. So therefore, how could we be there? Which last time I checked is the pre-tribusition. There's your verse. Oh, you want more? Let's give you a couple more. Bible's very clear about that. And the order is not by chance here. First Thessalonians 1, we're gonna read. And then 1 Thessalonians 5. For those of you hooked on chronology, that's right before and after 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the major passages dealing with the rapture. So before he talks about the rapture, he mentions this, and then after the rapture, he reiterates it. What's that truth? We can't be there. We can't be in the seven-year tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from what? The coming wrath right? And then after the rapture passage, he says, what? I says it again. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer what? Wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the seven-year tribulation is an outpouring of God's wrath for seven years nonstop. And since the scripture teaches, that's not one, that's not two, that's three verses that the scripture says we are saved from, rescued from, not appointed unto God's wrath. How can we be in that time frame? We're rescued from it. Again, in order to be rescued from the seven-year tribulation, when does that put the rapture? Prior, that's the pre-trib position. That's three verses. Clears it a bell. How, how do you get around this? There's not one single, what, what, how many do you want? But they say, oh, oh, see, but see, you're still deducing that pre-trib scenario from those passages. And again, we saw there's nothing wrong with that. We, we deduce biblical doctrine all the time from the Bible, including eschatology, which is a doctrine, you know, right? But, but, that, maybe they say, oh, but, but still, that's not, that's not a direct verse explicitly stating that the church is going to leave prior to the seven-year tribulation, that they're not going to be in it, Really? I'm going to give you a super exact verse. How do you get around this one? This is about as explicit as it gets that we are not going to be in the seven-year tribulation, right? We saw this before. It's a promise from Jesus. Last time I checked, he's trustworthy, okay? And here's what he says to the church, including us today. Revelation 3.10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, Jesus speaking, I will also keep you from what? The hour of trial that is going to come upon what? The whole world to test who? not the church, those who still live on the earth, okay? As we saw before in great detail, that's obviously contextually, biblically, that is a promise from Jesus in one single verse that we are not gonna be on the hour trial. Notice it's not a local trial. Well, they were just talking about local persecution. That they're, No, it says there, uh, the whole world, to test the whole world, it's a global thing. So what is the hour trial, the season that's coming upon the whole world That's not going to test the church, but just those who are behind. It's the seven-year tribulation. So in this single verse is a clear promise from Jesus. We're not going to be there. Case closed. So how can you make this basic? There's not one single verse. I don't know how much more explicit you can get uh, than that. One guy says this, critics of the pre-trib rapture like to point to the fact that the Bible never refers to the rapture of the church as the pre-trib rapture. But hello, neither does the Bible uh, uh, refer to the rapture as the pre-wrath rapture, or the mid-wrath rapture, or the post-trib rapture. It's another red herring argument. As was covered in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, the Bible promises that we are not subjected to the wrath of come, which is the seven-year tribulation, which means we're not gonna be there, which means, guess what? It's pre-trib. 
Case closed. Why in the world do you keep resisting this biblical truth? You're supposed to allow the scripture to speak out to us the good news. Why do you resist it? Well, again, I think it's because there's a lot of money to be gained. The people, as we saw before, who put the church in the seven-year tribulation, not only sell fear when we offer biblically the blessed hope, but there's something to gain by getting people freaked out, by putting them falsely in the seven-year tribulation. It's called survival gear and all this stuff, and well, you know, and they're making millions of dollars off of it. But to coin that crowd, it's called tribulation wannabes. One guy puts it this way. He says, listen, you would think that the desire to go through the seven-year tribulation would be as popular as the desire to jump into a pit filled with vipers and broken glass. And, and, and as illogical as that may seem, there's a large number of so-called Christians that fully expect to get roughed up before Christ returns. Many Christians argue strongly for the right to suffer persecution at the hands of the Antichrist and the one world government. These tribulation saint wannabes constantly harp, well, because Jesus and his disciples suffered persecution, we should expect no better. Well, I hate to be the bearer of good news, but the word of God clearly states that we will escape the seven-year tribulation bloodbath. Why? Because the Bible says, again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3, 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation that's gonna come upon the whole world to try them that dwell on the earth. In one regard, though, listen, people who think that the church will go through the seven-year tribulation, they're somewhat correct because I believe there's gonna be a huge number of people who are Christians in name only. And churches are flooded with those today. They will find themselves left behind facing the wrath of God, not real, true, born-again Christians. Okay, right? And so, which brings up another objection, right? Talking about people getting saved in the seven-year tribulation. I had one guy, he said, with all due respect, again, tribulation wannabe, you just got to keep squeezing the church in there. And she's like, they say, wait, wait a second, right? You got to, you keep quoting these passages about, you know, we're not, uh, the, the church isn't going to be under God's wrath. You're saved from rescue from, yeah, because I'm quoting Bible. Oh, yeah, well, I got a problem with that. Because, because you said the church is not appointed unto God's wrath, but you admit that these people are going to be getting saved in the seven-year tribulation, which means they're under God's wrath. So how do you deal with that? Uh, simple, that's not the church. As we saw before, right? That's why you want to get saved now and become a church-age saint. The people who get saved in the seven-year tribulation is a tribulation saint. It's not the same audience. The promise to be rescued from, saved from, and not appointed unto God's wrath is for those who respond now, prior to the rapture, i.e. the church. Those people are not the church. That stopped the church age after the rapture. Okay? And that's the point, as we've been seeing. Why do you resist? Don't flirt with being a tribulation saint. Praise God you got saved, but now your head's on the chopping block. Literally, get saved now. Avoid the whole thing by God's grace and mercy. Why would you resist, right? But that's what the scripture teaches, okay? But again, you would think that would be case closed, but they continue on. And this one's unfortunately really popular out there. I'm going like, what Bible are you reading? But here's the other, uh, the fourth one, the accusation. They say, the pre-trib rapture produces laziness. What? What are you talking about? Oh, and it sounds very formal too, because let me quote, will not. Anticipation produce irresponsibility? If a person is constantly anticipating the return of Jesus Christ, will he not become so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? What? So basically what you're saying is the scripture teaches the blessed hope 
And you're saying it's really the blessed couch potato. That it turns people into lazy slobs who aren't serious about Jesus. What? As we saw before, the scripture tells us what we need to be doing as Christians as we await the blessed hope. And it ain't laziness. It's anything but that. Okay? In fact, let me just remind you just a few of those verses. What do we do in the meantime, scripturally, as Christians, while we await the rapture? Well, let's read the Bible. What a concept. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven as we what? Eagerly goof off and get worldly and lazy. I'm sorry, wrong translation. As we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1.10. And we what? Wait for his son from heaven. Our focus is on Jesus, not this world, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. First Timothy 6.14. To keep this command. We're out there obeying God because you know what? When the rapture happens, not if, he's gonna find you doing something. And is it keeping his commands? Right? The rapture, the preacher rapture actually motivates the Christian, to not be lazy, right? To keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. James 5 eight. you to be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. First Thessalonians 5, 6, so then let us not be like the others who are what? Asleep, right? So the Bible actually tells you, don't get lazy as you await the rapture. Don't be like those people. So uh, that's why I said, what Bible are you reading, right? Don't, who are asleep, but let us, who are waiting for the rapture, what? Be alert and what? Self-controlled. These verses indicate that Jesus' arrival will come when nobody expects it. And therefore, what's the biblical proper appropriate response? You need to always be ready for it. That is, always be busy doing what the master told us to do. In the meantime, not being lazy, sitting around. Okay, listen, the pre-trib rapture is what actually helps to motivate us, that biblical truth, to not be lazy. And if you doubt that, look at the Thessalonica church and their example. If you read First and Second Thessalonians, these guys to whom Paul taught the rapture pre-trib scenario, look at what effect it had on them. They weren't lazy, right? What you'll see is they received the word of God in much affliction, but with joy in the Holy Spirit, right? Remember we saw before, encourage one another with these words. What? That I'm not gonna be in the seven years of tribulation, the worst time in the history of mankind, God's wrath. Yes, we're gonna have general trials, general tribulation, that were promised, but we're not gonna be in the seven-year tribulation when it's absolute wholesale slaughter, horrible, antichrist, evil, demons, you name it, catastrophe on a global scale, nonstop for seven. That encourages me. It helps put my problems in perspective. Yeah, it's a challenge now. And Jesus said, I'm going to face general persecution, general trials. But praise God, I'm encouraged. I'll never go into that, right? And that's why they got such joy. Listen, that's why you can, you can handle this because at least it ain't going to be that. That's the example you see with the Thessalonica church. And they became followers of Christ. They were followers of this world. These guys were prime examples, including uh, an example to the rest of the believers, how to live, how to respond, right? This was not some big mega church, right? These guys didn't have a lot, but man, they served Jesus. They were serious as well as they became broadcasters of the word of God. These guys shared the gospel like no other. And Paul refers to that. And this is the church that he taught about the rapture. It doesn't produce laziness. One guy says this, broadcasting the gospel everywhere became the activity of the Thessalonians. Why? Because they believed that Jesus Christ was coming again. And can I tell you something? If you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again and it could happen at any time, which is only taught in the pre-tribusition, then you ain't gonna be lazy. Man, you're gonna be, woo-wee, motivated because today could be that last day. 
that I could tell that person, my loved one, my neighbor, my coworker about Jesus Christ. Today could be the day that Jesus shows up and what, how's my walk with him? My goofing off, you know, today. Laziness? Again, I'll say it again. What Bible are you reading? Right? But it goes on. The doctrine, this doctrine, produced such motivation as the world had seldom seen. Not one must miss the opportunity of hearing that Jesus is coming back and that therefore we should trust him. This was, listen, the mo- not just a blessed hope, the motivating hope of the Thessalonican church and it could be well ours today. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught that he might come back at any time, suddenly, imminently, without any notice or signs. It could happen without warning, suddenly catching us off guard if we're not faithfully serving our master. And if you truly believe in the pre-trib rapture scenario, and if you keep that on the forefront of your mind every single day, man, that is one thing you're not going to be. You are never going to be a lazy Christian. In fact, if you are a lazy Christian, dare I say it's either because you aren't saved or you need to get back to the scripture. Because you, you realize that it could be today. All the game stuff stops. All the worldliness stops. All the procrastination stops. If you really take it to heart, what the scripture says, okay? And again, uh, here's the irony. If you take a look at the Bible and you read the Bible and you study the Bible and you observe the Bible, which I highly recommend, by the way, in Sunrise Bible Church, the pre-trib rapture scenario, which I'm convinced the scripture teaches, it does not produce laziness. How can you say that? But listen, listen, think about it. The very ones making this accusation against us, the other positions, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, it's actually their positions, if you think about it, that will produce laziness. And the reason why is because think about it. Only the pre-trib position says it can, it can happen at any moment. There's, there's nothing that needs to be fulfilled prophetically. It could happen today, and I got to get cracking. I got to get busy today. The other positions all have the church in the seven-year tribulation. Mid-trib, halfway. Pre-wrath, according to our chronology, three-quarters of the way through. Post-trib, all the way through. But as we saw before, once you place somebody in the seven-year tribulation with those positions, you can calculate the rapture, right? Which means I can calculate my laziness. If I believe, think about it. If I believed in the mid-trib position that the rapture occurs halfway into the seven-year tribulation, the Bible is very explicit. It tells me exactly what's going to happen in the first half. I just follow the seal judgments. And, and, and then I can time my laziness according. Well, we're only on the third one. I got three more to go. <laughs> and then five minutes before that midway point, which you can exactly calculate, then you start getting serious. And it's the same thing with pre-wrath and post-trib. So whose position really produces laziness? You get it? That's the irony. Oh, the pre-trib rapture produces laziness. Like, what Bible are you reading? It gets rid of laziness. It's your position, technically, that produces laziness. Because I know when he's coming back, and I'll time it accordingly, but only the pre-trib position says, no, you don't know. You don't know. And so you better always be ready. You better get busy living for Jesus now. You better share the gospel now, right? It could happen today, so you better get busy living a holy life today. For Jesus Christ today. Listen, the pre-trib, dare I say, biblical teaching of the rapture is a glad teaching that produces motivation. The other positions are a sad teaching that instills fear. One guy puts it this way. I love this. He says this. Only those who believe in the pre-trib rapture can honestly say, listen, you can, you're the only ones that can honestly say this. Jesus may come today. You can't say that with the other ones. But only the pre-trib, you said Jesus could come today today. The any moment coming to Christ is one of the truths in the New Testament that fills us with hope, anticipation, and motivation 
to holy, godly living and getting the gospel out. And believers, we should live with this hope every single day, the hope that Jesus Christ might come back today. And that's why only the pre-trib view allows for the blessed hope to be that which it is, a blessed hope. Encourage one another with these words. He could come back today. Wouldn't that be awesome if he came back today? Aren't you sick and tired of this wicked world system today? Aren't you sick and tired of all this COVID baloney going on today? Aren't you sick and tired of the new world order today? Aren't you sick and tired of the sin and the persecution and the hatred towards God today? He could come back today and we're gone. Woohoo! You don't get that with the other positions. Oh yeah, hang in there. It's just getting started. That ain't the blessed hope. That's a blessed torment. But the scripture calls it the blessed hope. Now listen as he encapsulates this in the classic hymn. Right? Is it the crowning day? I don't know if you've ever heard this one, but I love this. Watch this. Consider this, the pre-trib teaching, the crowning day to make the point. Right? Uh, this is what we can sing because it's biblical and it's true. Jesus may come today, glad day, glad day. And I would see my friend, dangers and troubles would end if Jesus should come today. Glad day, glad day. Is it the crowning day? I'll live for today, nor anxious be. Jesus, my Lord, I soon shall see. Glad day, glad day. It's the crowning day. But he says, if mid-tribbers, pre-rathers, or post-tribbers sang this song, they would have to sing it this way. Jesus can't come today. Sad day, sad day. I won't see my friend. Dangers and troubles, they won't end because Jesus can't come today. Sad day, sad day. This is not the crowning day. I won't live for today and anxious. I will be the beast and the false prophet. I shall soon see. Sad day, sad day. This is not the crowning day. And again, we laugh at that, but you know what? That's the truth. That's the truth. Okay, as we see. Again, think about it. The pre-tribution is the only one that can honestly say that Jesus Christ could come back today. That's why it's called the blessed hope. Only the pre-tribution produces, listen, a glad song to the heart, joy, hope, fruitfulness, and motivation, not a sad song of doom and gloom, instilling fear and, dare I say, laziness. It's your position that is producing laziness, not ours. But unfortunately, these people persist. Right? You repeat a lie loud enough, long enough, and keep spitting it out there on the internet. Unfortunately, people buy it. And this is one of the biggest ones out there. The fifth one they say is the pre-trib rapture is a recent teaching, and it must be rejected. Really? Let's take a look at that one uh, as well. But, but here's, how they, here's how they encapsulate this, right? And it usually starts off with this. They bait you. Oh, yeah. It's good to see you, Christian. But did you know? Do you know your pastor's lying to you? Did you know that you don't know what I know because I'm in the know you know? Did you know that I know something that they're holding back from you? There's a conspiracy going on, and here's what it is. <gasps> Did you know that the pre-trib rapture was started by a guy named John Darby? Darby, and, and he got this demonic idea from this charismatic girl from Scotland. Her name is Margaret McDonald, and it happened back in 1813, and, and it's all demonic. It's diabolical. You're being lied to. It's going to destroy you. <laughs> It'll keep going because it's a lie. It's one of the biggest lies, I kid you not, circulating on the internet. It just keeps going out there. And I, for the life of me, I don't know how many times I've dispelled this thing and other uh, biblical scholars, dare I say, who actually read the Bible and you come away with the conclusion that it's the preacher rapture scenario, but they still just keep spouting it out. And have you never investigated this accusation? 
it's crazy, but let me, let me, let me break it down for you. They say, really? So, so you say the pre-trib rapture has to be rejected because it was started by John Darby, who recently got it from a demonic charismatic girl named Mar McDonald in 1830. So 1830, recent rejection. You got, okay, well, first, first of all, stop, stop right there. This whole idea, this whole idea uh, that you need to reject a biblical teaching because it's recent, did you realize that works both ways? I, I, I don't believe in that, and I'm going to dispel it here soon, but let's just follow their logic. I have to reject the teaching because it's recent. All right. Uh, did you know that the pre-wrath rapture position, okay, started in 1990? Last time I checked, that's 160 years earlier than 1830. So surely you reject that, right? And I quote, it was formally named and publicized by Marvin Rosenthal in his book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church, published by Thomas Nelson in 1990. And he did it at the prompting of his friend, a guy named Robert Van Campen. He was one of the wealthiest uh, men in America at the time. Uh, we were actually on location at one of his properties. It was a castle in England filming there. This guy had so much money, uh, you could even shake a stick at. Uh, Van Campen, okay, went on to write what was called the sign and the rapture question answered plain and simple. And listen, had it not been for Van Campen's wealth, this whole idea of a pre-wrath rapture, which is basically, again, our timeline three quarters of the way, then we leave, it would have never even got off the ground. The guy paid for it to get off the ground. It wasn't because it was so popular and true and you just had to deal with the facts. Watch this. One guy says this, I believe that if Van Campen were not a wealthy individual, then very few of any of us would have ever even heard of this view, the pre-wrath rapture. Van Campen spent a number of years searching for an advocate of his newly developed viewpoint until he was finally able to persuade this guy, Marvin Rosenthal, okay, to adopt the new theory. In fact, he said, I had a friend who was interviewed extensively by Van Campen in the 80s for a pastorate of the church that Van Campen attended in Chicago, which right there tells you who's making the decisions in that church. The guy with the big bucks. I'd love to say that that doesn't go on churches today. Unfortunately, it does. Uh, he says, and so this guy, he's, he's wanting to be a pastor. So Van Campen's the guy interviewing him, right? And he says, my friend spent hours on the phone with Van Campen, and Van Campen tried to convince him of his strange rapture view. In the end, my friend could not agree with Van Campen. It's not biblical. That's right, because it's not biblical. And so he did not have and was not given the opportunity to become that pastor, right? It was clear that Van Campen was searching for someone to champion his new strange rapture position. And he finally convinced Marvin Rosenthal to that view. And then Rosenthal wrote a book called The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church, published again by Thomas Nelson in 1990. Then Van Campen, listen, subsidized the publishing of that book by buying thousands and thousands of copies and sent them to pastors all across America. That's how it got out there. It wasn't because somebody said, man, this is so convicting. It's so true and so biblical. I've got to promote this. No, he, he bought the books and sold them out there. That's the only reason why he got out there, okay? And that's how the position was spread. Later, Van Campen came out with his own book, again, The Sign, three editions, pay attention to the dates here, 1992, 1999, and 2000 by Crossway Books. Then he published The Rapture Question Answered, Plain and Simple, 1997 by Ravel. So again, let's stir all this together. So let me get this straight. Your whole premise is we need to reject the pre-trib rapture because it's a recent teaching back from 1830, which is not true, but let's play with that. But it's a recent teaching from the 1830s. But here we have the pre-wrath rapture position 
by Martin Rosenthal and Robert Van Campen in 1990. Again, that's 160 more years recent than 1830. So therefore, you must just as vehemently reject and resist and expose this recent horrible doctrine that we can't accept because you can't accept a doctrine that's recent. Do you see how baseless this is? Ridiculous. And the 1830 thing isn't even true, as we'll get to soon enough, okay? But let's go even further. So with that premise, so just because a teaching is recent, that logic, uh, and not just about the rapture, but a, a recent te- I, I got to reject it just because it's recent. Did you know there's a lot of recent teachings that were rediscovered during this event called the Reformation? Did you know that? Now, as you as you, you'll hopefully know, the Reformation recent teachings, i.e., the 1500s. They were in the Bible the whole time. I believe in the pre-tribposition, not because of John Darby in 1830. <laughs> I believe in the Bible because that's what the, the, the I believe in the pre-trib rapture because that's what the Bible teaches. But did you know that there was in the 1500s a major reformation going on? The Roman Catholic Church in 1229 deliberately was not only full of false teaching, it's a works-based salvation. If you disagree with that, get our 12-week study on Roman Catholicism. Okay. But they deliberately in 1229 kept what copies there were of the Bible in Latin. You know why? Because the English language was now going, remember we saw last week, went from Greek to what? Latin. But guess what? It eventually went to English. So they deliberately kept it in Latin so that if you could somehow get a copy of the Bible, you can't even read it because you don't speak Latin. It's a cover. And so here comes 300 years later, roughly, the reformers, guess what they did? They could read Latin. So they, what? translated it into English. And when they begin to read the Bible for themselves and, and a language that everybody else could read for themselves, they didn't invent, they what? They rediscovered. They rediscovered teachings that were there the whole time that was a part of ecclesiastical cover-up. And I hope that those uh, uh, teachings, you and I would hold dear and say, well, I got to reject that because that was, that was recent in the 1500s. What? And here's what they rediscovered. They didn't invent, they rediscovered. Such classic doctrines like salvation by faith alone, right? Because Catholicism is works-based, right? Salvation by grace alone, right? Unmerited favor. It's not you do some and God kicks in the rest. It's only by the grace of God. They, they didn't invent that. They rediscovered it, right? Salvation by Christ alone. The Bible is man's sole authority on spiritual matters, not the Pope, not the church councils, things of that nature. Uh, Jesus is our sole mediator between God. That's what the Bible teaches. You don't need to go to a priest or a Pope. Right? You go directly to God through Jesus Christ, right? And the priesthood of the believer. So here's the point. All these biblical teachings that I would assume as Christians we hold dear, they came out uh, around in the 1500s, right? So do I reject them? Because that's your premise, right? It, it's ridiculous, folks, to say that, okay? And, and again, this is only 300 years difference from 1830, but it, it's baseless, okay? Rather, listen, could it be not just with those teachings, they didn't invent that, they rediscovered. Let's go back to John Darby in the pre-trib position. Could it very well be then, post the Reformation, when people, the average Joe, can get a copy of the Bible and read it for yourself, what a concept. Which, by the way, that's why many of them were burned alive at the stake. They were choked to death. They were hanged. They were murdered. They were drowned. Some of the reformers, the Catholic Church, got so mad at them for translating the Bible for the common person to read that they would not only hang them and then drown them, but then burn them at the stake 
and then throw their remains in the river. This is our heritage. But here's my point. They didn't invent those doctrines. They rediscovered them from an ecclesiastical cover-up. And so could it be that John Darby, he didn't invent the pre-trib rapture because it's been in the Bible for all this time. Now it's starting to get out in the common hands. And so he, as he studied the Bible, he came to, guess what? The biblical conclusion that there's a pre-trib rapture. And I think that's exactly what the case is going to be as we're going to see here very shortly. Okay, but here's my point. I, I sell that just to dispel the lie. Just because it's recent means it needs to be rejected. If that were true, then you would certainly reject the pre-wrath rapture position in 1990. Hello, right? And plus, that's a fallacy in the first place. But they, could, they persist. They, they, they push this point too. It's not just recent teaching. They said that John Darby got it from this charismatic demoniac girl, Margaret McDonald, and that's where he got the whole idea from. Really? I'm telling you, this is one of the biggest lies out there. It's so baseless. I tell people, if you spout that, either you're, you, you're the worst investigator in the history of mankind, or, and you need to get a different job, and I'm trying to be kind, or you're just a flat-out liar. I don't know how to put it. It's so baseless. But hey, we're out of time. We'll have to get to that, Lord willing, next time. There's your cliffhanger. So, uh, and we'll get to that. But anyway, my point is this, as we close, are you ready for the rapture? I don't know your heart here today. I hope that if the rapture were to happen today, and it could, that this place would be empty. But would it? See, you can fool me, but you can't fool God. And if you think it's by going to church services or trying to be a good person, if you think it's by your own works, or if you're, if you're playing that mathematical game that's unbiblical, well, you know, as long as I got 51% good. And if that's really what you're trusting, you're not going. You're going to be left behind. There has to come a point in time when you entrust your eternal destiny on the cross of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son, his one and only son, Jesus, to take the death penalty in our place. That's what he was doing. That's what you trust in for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible says if you confess Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. That's it. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because nobody died on the cross for you. And no one is righteous, no, not one, Romans chapter 3. There's no other way to get there except through Jesus as an act of grace and mercy. If you haven't done that, do it today. This is not a game. But as a Christian, certainly a sunrise, yeah, Pastor Billy, I'm ready. I'm ready, man, this pre-trip thing. I can do, blessed hope, this is good. Well, as always, it's one thing to say you're ready. It's another thing to show it. And you know how you're going to show it? Speaking of biblical, then guess what? You're going to follow the example of the Thessalonica church. As we saw, when they learned about the rapture, what did it do? You weren't lazy. They weren't lazy. Man, they were living for Jesus. They were following Jesus Christ. And they were getting the gospel out all over the place. Even though they didn't have much, they were doing what they could. So if you really are ready, as a Christian, then it will show by your motivation, especially for the lost. You won't be procrastinating. You will realize that time is of the essence. And today could be that last day. I need to get there on time. Like this guy found out. This is a true story. This is wild. Watch this. A letter came to me some years ago from the mission field and my wife brought it to me and said, would you please read this? And I was sitting in my office in Dallas on a comfortable chair. I finished reading the letter. I was weeping on my knees. 
letter came from a dear brother, a native missionary, the work in Hardwar by River Ganges. During that couple of weeks time, 35 million Hindus walked and traveled by train and bullock carts and buses from all over the country to go in this dirty, polluted waters of River Ganges, washing themselves for the forgiveness of sins. This one missionary working among these people telling about Jesus one evening he was coming home and now in the letter he writes the experience what happened that evening he said I saw this young woman sitting by the bank of the river weeping uncontrollably and pounding upon her chest knowing something so terrible happened I went to her and asked why are you weeping what happened she replied, my husband is sick. He cannot work anymore. My sins are so many that nobody knows about. To find forgiveness for my sins and solution to the problems of my home, I have given the best offering I can give to God as Ganges. My only son, my six-month-old baby boy, I just threw him into the river. Next paragraph, I sat beside her, explained her the gospel. Her sins are forgiven 2000 years ago, I explained to her. The God is not angry with her, God didn't make her poor. All of a sudden she wiped her tears and looked straight into my eyes and said these words, but why didn't you come to me? half hour sooner I didn't have to kill my child I never heard this before but why didn't you come to me half hour sooner there's a horrible price to pay for procrastination or getting distracted or wasting your time on what's truly important Yeah, Pastor Bill, I'm ready for the rapture, man. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. That's good. But right now, how many people would say the same thing to us? Why didn't you come to me a half hour sooner? Christian co-worker, Christian neighbor, Christian family member, why didn't you tell me? I didn't have to lose my job. I didn't have to get divorced. I didn't have to ruin my body with drugs or immorality. I didn't have to go in the seven-year trip. I didn't have to go to hell. Why didn't you come a half hour sooner? What were you doing with your time? If we really believe in the pre-trib rapture, we are not lazy. We are not goofing off. Every day we're looking for somebody to tell about Jesus because we know time is short. May we be that church that gets there in time, not a half hour late. Amen? Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. 
In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven. I need a savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The, the word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven. Right. And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court. The gavel's been passed. The judges said, Hey, listen, we all know you're guilty. Uh, you even admit you're guilty. And uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? 
It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave, and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.